If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, and this is the BBC History Magazine podcast for the week of 8 March 2012. You probably know already, but this is the podcast sister to Britain's best-selling history magazine. Every four weeks, we lovingly craft an issue full of the latest research from all corners of the past, though with an emphasis on British history. If you like this podcast, I am resolutely confident that you will like BBC History magazine too. It's on sale in all good news agents and on subscription, and now it's available on the Kindle as well. Go to historyextra.com slash Kindle or search for us on Amazon for more on that. And if you enjoy a spot of social media, you can follow us at facebook.com slash historyextra or twitter.com slash historyextra. 20,000 other twittering historical enthusiasts can't be wrong. Coming up this week... Sister Bridget heard a knocking at the door. When she opened it, there was a small child who she patted on the head and the child dropped dead instantly. And next line just said, Sister Bridget was never allowed to open the door or talk to children again. That was James Kelly talking about nuns who fled to the continent. When Turpix went down in November 1944, it was seen as a sort of harbinger of the end of the of the Nazi regime and by extension the end of the war. That was Patrick Bishop discussing the sinking of a feared German battleship in the Second World War. Right, now for our first interview. Following the Reformation in England, thousands of Catholic women chose to leave their homes for good and join convents on the European mainland. The little-known story of these nuns on the run is now being researched by a team at Queen Mary, University of London. The project's research assistant, Dr James Kelly, has written a piece about the nuns for our March issue, and Rob Attar headed down to Queen Mary to find out more. The piece you've written for the magazine has been titled Nuns on the Run. So, for starters, could you just explain for our listeners who were these nuns and why were they on the run? Right, following the Reformation, there was obviously the closure of religious houses, which is known about a lot. You know, we think of the great um, monasteries, for example, in Yorkshire, like Revo, and, um, and other ones up that way, or Whitby, we might think of. What we don't always think about is what happened to the female side of this, that yeah. we think about the monks, but not the women. So, following the Reformation, again, we had the male set up, that we began to have institutions built to educate men in the Catholic faith, which was at that time illegal under Elizabeth I. So they had to go abroad to do that. So again, the male examples are Dowie is a very famous one in northern France, and the English College in Rome. Now, at one point, there became a necessity, or a belief amongst women, that they wanted that outlet as well. What do you do with a Catholic daughter, for example, if you want to school them in the Catholic faith? And there's not that much of an educational outlet anyway in England at the time for them. Um, There's also the movement from women themselves. They want to devote themselves to God, and they want to be able to devote themselves as, as nuns in the religious life. And so initially, the first little wave you get actually enter French convents. A few begin doing so. And this begins to build momentum. And then we get the first English convent established in Brussels at the end of the 16th century. And it's purely established for English women. It's part of the agreement that it will be an English institution. So they're not going to take from the local populace. 
As it is, they might take a few every now and again. But it's an English institution, that's what's new. It's an English institution abroad. And it's there that they can go to become nuns. So it's English, so this wouldn't include, for example, Scottish or perhaps Welsh ladies? At this time, and you know, I don't want to be offensive to the Welsh, but at this time, generally the English and Welsh are joined. The Wales, it's just, it just goes with it. So when we talk of the English college in Rome, if we're going to give it, you know, probably its proper title would be the English and Welsh college, but it's just known as the English college. The Scottish um, mission and church has its own setup, but you will get the odd Scot will end up in this for whatever reason. Similarly, with the Irish situation, obviously Ireland at that time is part of well, it's not called Union, but part of the Union as such. But again, you get separate Irish institutions, so you will get the occasional Irish woman joining one of these convents. The big question is, and this is one that we have, is why do certain Irish women join an English one? And we've, we've had to think about all the different ways of that. Is it about a Gaelic background or an old English background? But it doesn't work out like that. So that's a bit of a mystery why they would choose to join an English one rather than an Irish one. So we've got all these, these English women going abroad to become nuns in these convents. How many women are we talking about? Know. Right, initially, before we undertook this research to have a look about how many women actually went abroad to become nuns, it was always estimated we were talking about 1,500. We've actually found 4,000. So that's a huge increase, and that's, that's a big number, because we're talking over, from, as I say, the end of the 16th century, so we'll say from 1600 to the French Revolution, We've got 4,000 women going across, which is a huge number, and it's a huge number to be taking that risk, because remember, it is illegal if they're caught going across. Not only that, what they're entering are enclosed convents. Now, this means that generally it's a contemplative life. So when the woman makes her vows, she will not leave from within those four walls of the convent. That's where she will stay for the rest of her life. So it's not like she can go there and then every year pop back to say hello to her family. That's it. She's chosen that life. And that's generally where, where she'll stay. You said that there was some danger attached to, to fleeing Britain in that way. Did anything bad happen to any of them? Um, they did have to dodge port officials generally, which was also what the males had to do. There was probably a slight... They probably had it slightly better than the men, you see, but... It, <laughs> And this is, again, not wanting to, to belittle what they went through or the dangers that they undertook to get there, because, of course, any travel at that time was dangerous. Mm. But the authorities were really on the lookout for men who were priests, because that was the real danger. You know, they saw them coming back in, that they'd come back once they were trained and enter into England and spread what they saw as um, a danger and perhaps a poison that could be against the state. Mm. So they were on the lookout for women, but generally you find the women do eventually make their way. Of course, part of the problem they have, and which is perhaps where the English comments are a very interesting case study, is that we often think, or a lot of people think, of nuns as forced enclosure. You know, there's, this, there's if you like, um, a popular myth that a lot of these women were forced into the convents against, you know, against their will, and that that's where they were forced to go. In fact, with the English ones, overwhelmingly it's their own choice. And you actually find them having to fight their parents, as it were, to go, or to disobey their parents to go to the convents. So again, we're talking about an actual choice here that they're making to do this. It's a huge undertaking. The English state at this point weren't keen for men and women to go abroad and, be and become nuns and priests. I guess they wouldn't have wanted them to practice Catholicism in England, so really was the only choice that they thought they had was to convert. That would have been the only choice that, that, that these, these women felt they had. Although 
That's at the official level. What do you get are pockets in England where Catholicism is practiced. We have famous examples of families who stay Catholic throughout the period. So um, a lot of people think of the Howards, for example, as a famous thing, but the Howards actually flip backwards and forwards. You get a Protestant member followed by a Catholic member and so on. An example instead I'd like to give you is of the Peters, or the Barons Peter of Rittle. And they live about... 30 miles outside central London is their main, their main seat um, at Ingate Stone Hall and Thorndon Hall, which is just outside Brentwood. And they stay resolutely Catholic all the way through. And they are a recusant family, which means that they will not attend the state church, which is wow. illegal not to do that. You have to go to church each, each week. You have to be there, but they will not go. And you find them backing the convents, paying, you know, for the convents, buildings, whatever it is, or nuns, members of their family going there, and so on and so forth. So whilst it is illegal to be Catholic in England, there are pockets of resistance, but they kept very much under the radar, and they'd be served by priests who were hiding, again, under the radar of the system. And so in some ways the, the convents and, I suppose, the monks abroad would be kept in contact with people from England? Oh, yes, no, that... This is, this is where really we see one of the most interesting things about the Catholic community and, for example, the convents at this time, that here we have a community who have deep and, and quite expansive contact with the continent. It's a European affair that we're talking about, a network that spreads across it. So, for example, there is the case of Mary Natchbull, who was an abbess for the Benedictines. And during the Civil War period, whilst Charles II was in exile, she offers to help the court in exile because, you know, to get him back on, the, back on the throne in England after Cromwell. And one of the ways she does this is the financial aid she gives him, but she also offers up effectively a diplomatic bag, if you like, because mm-hmm. the nuns are in contact with you know, their friends, their networks at home. So, so she says to Charles and his court in exile, effectively, look, we can get you the letters back and we can get them there. And this is how it goes. Effectively, she's a clearinghouse for the post. She makes the convent. And so in that case, did some of these women become involved in political events going on in England? For example, I think you talked in the article about James II. Yeah, they do, they do to an extent in that they're very much involved. They, they are, they're part of England abroad, if you like. They view themselves as English. They're very, they're, they're very much that way, and they're praying for the conversion of England. So the example of James II and with the Jacobite court is that they're a natural focus for that court. So the convents will educate the children of the court in exile. Alternatively, we find, which is another quite interesting aspect, James II and his court visiting the convents and acting as a continental Catholic monarch would. So it allows him right. to keep up, if you like, the, the reputation and the face of being a royal, as it were, which he wouldn't necessarily have if he was just having to sit round in Paris by himself or something. So they kind of added to his prestige? They did add to his prestige, and that way that he allows to keep up face. And as I said, the educational impact is, is very important. And to an extent, it depends how much... And it's not a judgment we can make how much you want to think that prayer is a huge currency to give. So the Jacobite Court will back these convents, and part of what some of these convents will do is pray for the return of uh, James and his successors to the throne in England. Which they would see as having a real effect, whether or not people nowadays would 
to them, they, that really would be helping their cause. Yes, so you see, you know, that, you know, we don't want to reduce prayer to being some sort of bartering system, but they, it would be seen as a great help that this prayer is going on, and it would be seen as, as something of real worth and real value. What kind of lives would these nuns lead? What would be a typical day for an English nun abroad? Well, a typical day will depend upon which order they join, because they all have slightly different focus. But generally, it will be structured around um, a day of prayer and seeing certain parts of the office, which is, which is the office is how they structure the day. It's the structure of prayer. Often, this will involve night prayer, um, which to us sounds, sounds very harsh, having to get up about two in the morning yeah. to, go and, to go and pray, pray with um, your fellow sisters in the convent. Um, you will rise early, and it will be structured around private prayer, communal prayer. There'll also be works that you might do. So it might be your job to be in the laundry each day, or it might be that you will make um, communion wafers, or you might be very well known for music. So, for example, we have examples where some English girls are allowed in without a dowry, which is the payment that's made to support them by serving convent life, because they're particularly good at music. So they've got a particularly good singing voice. Because, again, it's fundamental to the nun's prayer life. But also, where the nuns have a public interface, if you like to use a modern term, is in their church, where the public can go. And now you have to imagine that when you go into this church, you can't see the nuns. They're kept out of sight. So it will be designed slightly differently, the church, to what we'd expect from a standard one. But you can't see them. But when you're there, and you're at Mass, or if you've gone for prayer, you can hear what in your mind are angelic voices, is the term that's often used. And so if the convent has a particularly good choir, it's one of those things that will draw you to go to that church, you know, for the full sensory yeah. effect that you'd get with that. And so these, these women had left their lives in England, often at quite a young age. Do we know how they coped with, with this transition or with leaving all their friends and family behind? Generally... We don't have so much personal writing. It's one of the things they give up, and they'd often destroy personal writing to some extent. However, there are letters. They'd sometimes be allowed to write letters home and the like. So we can see that. And generally, they seem pretty happy in their life. Part of the decrees following the Council of Trent, which is the great reform movement in the, church that ha- in the Catholic Church that happens at the same time as the Reformation, says that no woman can be forced to be in a convent. And these letters would generally support that. They seem very happy there. And we have, I think, one example where one woman does leave. You know, she just doesn't like it. She she doesn't enjoy it. We get others who maybe try it a couple of convents, a different style of going about things and their way of doing it. You also, when you go there, it was part of the idea that you you were joining a new family. So to give you an example, that when you entered the convent, you would read what was called the obituary book or perhaps the chronicle. Now, the obituary book, that, that sounds quite depressing if you were given that, to, given that to read. But it's actually, if you like, a little biography of every nun who's gone before you in that community. So like a new family tree. And usually these, would be, these could be quite lengthy sometimes and say how virtuous this sister might be. Sometimes they like to dwell on their particularly unpleasant deaths. And um, to show spiritual vigour, that is. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's not sort of um, some macabre form of entertainment, but it is to show like a spiritual vigour of how they, how they suffered, but they were still joined and focused with Christ. Um, and they would just get a feeling that they were entering a new life there. Of course, sometimes this doesn't always work, and it's only one example that I found, and this was with the Benedictines in Brussels. And as I said, they'd have these lengthy, maybe four pages, you know, written about this, and just one nun 
I think she was called Sister Bridget, but I forget her name off the top of my head. And all it said were a couple of lines. It just says, Sister Bridget heard a knocking at the door. When she opened it, there was a small child who she patted on the head, and the child dropped dead instantly. And next line just said, Sister Bridget was never allowed to open the door or talk to children again. And so, so I always feel quite sorry for her that, you know, she might have been a brilliant nun throughout her life, yeah. but whenever anyone else entered it, all they found out about her was that she had that one unfortunate meeting with some stray child on the doorstep. They didn't even write anything else about her, the poor, the poor woman, so, so it can work out badly, I suppose, if, if that happens yeah. to you. But again, perhaps with the obituary books as well, it shows you the level of education these women had. That it's very often it's the nuns who are writing these books. Um, I suppose that was a traditionally the case, wasn't it? Religious communities were, were very much more educated than the general population. Well, and, we, and certainly when we find it here that, you know, they're, they're very interested in education, just as the male side of things are, because mm. often when we talk of male education on the content, we think of a religious order like the Jesuits, which revolutionised in many ways education and how it was undertaken. They were very big into educating. But on the women's side, a lot of them they take an influence from that as well and set up schools themselves. So, you know, one of the most famous examples, perhaps, that, that we can still touch upon, if you like, is the canonesses of the Holy Sepulchre, or the Sepulchrains, who set up a school in Liège for girls and then brought it back to England and is now Newhall, which is a well-known independent school um, just outside Chelmsford in Essex, and still going. So that's a, a continuing reminder of this period of the English convents abroad. It certainly is that we have schools like that. We also have a material culture that you can touch upon. Um, let's give you an example. When uh, one group of Benedictines came back to England, they set up at Stanbrook in the Midlands, and Stanbrook was designed by Pugin, the famous 19th yeah. century architect. So, you know, very grand. We also have abroad some lasting reminders. The only one that you can still visit are the, um, are the Augustinians in Bruges, whose convent is still there and is still functioning, as it were, and you can visit the chapel, and you can see it's a very, very impressive chapel, and you can find, when you look in the account books, its actual recording of its building. It's still there, and a hugely impressive thing. Of course, there's also other um, items that survive. So I was at the Carmelites in Darlington, who have just moved out, partly because of the cost of the building they were in, an old building, but I can remember them showing me they had particular relics of martyrs, which were priests who were executed on the mission, and they also had a huge cross that they had on the altar. I can remember the nun showing me in the Chronicle before she showed me this um, about them bringing this cross back to England, that it was a huge cross, and there it is, they still have it. You know, there was something they thought was worth when they were fleeing from the French Revolutionaries, bringing with them back to England. And you talked about fleeing from the French Revolution. Was that the period when most of these English convents abroad ceased to exist? Um, well, when we say they ceased to exist, that they, they, they ceased to exist abroad is perhaps a better right, way of saying yeah. it, that they actually all come back and resettle, the vast majority of them. So all of those that are in Flanders and northern France, which is the vast majority, bar one, um, all fl fled before the revolutionaries, that they had the same threat. Some of them were imprisoned, they were treated badly, but if you like, their Englishness is perhaps what saved them. So they came back to England, settled in different places, dotted around the country. Now, one convent, as I mentioned, returned, which was the Bruges convent. Yeah. There is one exception to the rule, and which is very different to the rest of them, and that is the convent of Our Lady of Zion, which settled in Lisbon. So it's the only yeah. female institution to settle outside, as they say, of northern France and Flanders. 
What's also interesting about that convent is it is the only one to survive from pre-Reformation. So when I'm talking about the English convents, we're talking about new institutions founded. The Bridgetines, who are the, at Our Lady, the convent of Our Lady of Sion in Lisbon, went from before the Reformation continuously. And actually it's quite marked that they're just in the process of closing now in Exeter. So really, you should see that's quite sad, actually. That's the only religious community that lasts from pre-Reformation times in England, an English pre-Reformation community, that carried on continuously is now closing. And so when they came back to England, was the atmosphere much more tolerant towards Catholics at that point? I wouldn't go as far as to say tolerant. What I'd say that the French Revolution helped them, that everybody could agree they don't like revolutionaries. And so when they came back, it was more a case of, look at these, these poor women, how they've been treated abroad by the revolutionaries. And the same with, the, don't forget, there's French clergy as well coming, and some French sisters and monks and so on, escaping what was going on in France. They have to live to a certain degree in secrecy. But perhaps what's more interesting about them is that their being there helps to add to the need for Catholic emancipation, which will come in 1829. Because the oh. fact is now you've got these religious houses in England, as well as the wave of Irish immigration, obviously starting at this time, you've now got actual religious institutions. So again, the pressure's there to build towards Catholic emancipation, allowing Catholics to be free to worship in the way that they want to. Did the French Revolution make it more, more of a case of England versus France as opposed to... Catholic versus Protestant? I think it did, because, because when, when you look at it to a certain extent, you find some English sources, it's really they're worried about the revolution, and they think that it could come to England, they see it against all sense of order and everything. Mm. We have to understand that when they came back, the atmosphere was still very anti-Catholic, and we can't underestimate that atmosphere. But it's more of a case that they were able to come back then, rather than before, because of what was going on in France. There's also the added issue that by then the Jacobite movement's finished, which, if you like, the Jacobite movement to get the Stuarts back on the throne is the last roll of the dice for Catholics to come back in England legally and to, if you like, regain the throne, make it important. And that effectively finishes with the 1745 rising, you know, with Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Battle of Culloden and all those events. That's the last roll of the dice there. And when that line fades... It's sort of a done deal that perhaps Catholics aren't quite the threat they once were. So the women coming back weren't in as much danger as they would have been when they left 200 years earlier? Um, They weren't in quite as much danger, but England was a much safer place to be than France for them. Right. (laughs) And obviously most of these convents no longer exist on the continent in terms of the people there. Can you still see any of the buildings they used to inhabit? Well, again, I mentioned the Bruges Augustinians, you can certainly see and you can still visit. You can, um, it's open on one afternoon. It's, wor- it's well worth a visit. The chapel is very, very impressive, and they'll show you that with marble and, and like, flooring. Other ones, you can still see some of the buildings, but some of them are now private residences. So, for example, the Carmelites who were in Lierre, who then went to Darlington, the buildings are still there, but they're all now split up into houses. Other ones have vanished altogether and have just been destroyed and there's no sign of them, that really you have to hunt round for a lot of them now. So they're not tourist attractions now in France or Belgium? Although, as I say, the Bruges one you can visit and is open to tourists, and you can see it, and it's still there functioning. And so you've been working on this big project about these, the nuns who went abroad to the continent. What else is there still to find out, do you think, about them? I think one of the big things 
that I would like to research is the issue of financial backing. Because we have benefactors' books, and it's something I've been looking at, telling us who was backing the convents. And now, whilst we'd expect Catholic, outright Catholic names that we know about to be in there, there's other more surprising ones. So to give you an example, the family of Richard Weston, the first Earl of Portland, was giving money to the convents. Now, you might say, so what? But the fact is that Richard Weston was acting as the Lord Treasurer for Charles I. So we're talking about someone really high up in government who's supporting these converts and has family members in them. So we can see that there's... That tells us a couple of things, that the nature of Catholicism is quite porous. You know, there's a wide spectrum about how you approach your Catholicism. And it's not always about being outright, right outside of things, but you can actually be inside of things as well. But it makes it very interesting about the financial backing. So we've got huge amounts of money leaving England to go and support these convents. For example, the Viscount Montague, who lived down in Sussex, the Brand family, one of the daughters who enters the convent comes with a massive dowry of £10,000 at the start of the 18th century. It's a huge amount of money now. It, it, yeah, it's a, it's a big amount of money now, and back then that is a huge amount of money to go out of England. And so I think it would be very interesting to see that sort of, that sort of economic backing. There's also other things we're working on, we're hoping to do, for example are some studies about average ages, about some social background issues, and we're hoping as well to do a mapping exercise, which would show you not just the counties, where they came from in the counties, but do regional studies of it, to see particularly if they, for example, were coming from areas that were across boundaries of counties, so that you know the authorities couldn't detect them quite as much, or if it was stronger in certain areas, such as the northeast and the northwest, as opposed to closer to London. And so looking at different elements like that as well. And have you been researching much with modern-day nuns? Have you been working with them to, to work out their history? We have been working with the modern-day nuns because they actually hold a lot of the documents still. So we felt hugely privileged that they've allowed us to look at these documents and willing to work with us. Again, I mentioned the Carmelites in Darlington. It was hugely privileged that they allowed me to go in because they have a very strict yeah. enclosure. And I had to go through back routes, for example, to be kept away from the other nuns. Um, and had my dinner privately, and like, right. but the atmosphere inside there was something to actually you could actually you could feel that it was a special place to be in, and that you felt hugely privileged to be in there. And a lot of the comments have worked very closely with us, and are very keen as well to get their story out. Because you know we talk about living history a lot. You hear that phrase all the time, but here we have it: actual living history that these people are still going on. So once more, the Carmelites, Darlington. When I went there, they showed me the profession book, a particular sister, Sister Kathleen. And she showed me the very first profession in the 1640s. And then she zoomed through the book, yeah. and then she pointed to her name and said, and there's me. And I thought that was a phenomenal thing to actually see the same book being used over, what, getting on towards 400 years of Literally history. Literally the same Literally the book. same book, the exact oh. same book with the writing, and they're still writing in it whenever they had a new profession. So there really is a lot of history to be discovered there. There's a, a great deal of history, and as they said, we've touched upon the political side of it. That you know, These women weren't just sat there doing nothing. We tend to think they yeah. disappeared off the continent and that was it. But they were involved in all these things, and the, you know, the Stuart Court and Exile Civil War, the Jacobites we've mentioned, but also other things they're talking about, they're witnessing all sorts of things. So we mentioned the Bridgetines in Lisbon. They've got records of the Lisbon earthquake. They sat there through it, which happened in the 18th century, a huge earthquake. So again, some people find that very interesting. And we've got records of all different things like that and how they view 
view things. There's also more tangible links they have, such as how they view martyrdom. So we've got Margaret Clitheroe, very famous um, martyr, a Catholic martyr in York, whose house you can visit in the shambles. Um, her daughter is in one of the convents. So they have a tangible link that they can actually see themselves. If you want to go on a slightly separate issue, we've also researched the Mary Ward sisters. They're, again, a slightly separate one, so we don't want to kind of get them too mixed up with these ones, but they're a whole new institution who had problems about getting backing from the official church, but they actually have a convent in England during the penal times that you can visit today, which is the Bar Convent Mm -hmm. in York, and you can still visit that. Now, again, they have tangible links because whilst they've got the Bar Convent in York, several of their members are imprisoned, actually, at one point because they're, they're doing what they are doing and people know they're doing that, but their brother is executed in York whilst they're in prison for being a Catholic priest. So you see very tangible links. that They are tied in wherever they are. It's not that they've just disappeared from the scene. They're still very much part of it. Still really involved in the history of the times. Yes, very much, and I think it gives us a far more rounded flavour, not just of the Catholic community, but the English community. We have, we have a tendency to see certainly British history, but, but perhaps especially English history in isolation from Europe. But here we have a clear example. Actually, there's a lot of European stuff feeding in back and forth. There's contact with the, with the continent. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was James Kelly of Queen Mary University of London. You can read his article in the March 2012 edition of BBC History magazine. A two-volume book, English Convents in Exile, will shortly be published by Pickering and Chateau. Before we move on to the next interview, just a little note to tell you that we are running a lecture series at the Tower of London over the spring and early summer this year. Our first event features military historian and TV presenter Saul David and the maritime archaeologist, historian and author Sam Willis, and they are discussing the subject, the Army or Navy, which did more to put Britain on the map. 
The event takes place on the evening of Thursday, 19 April, and you can find out more information and buy a ticket on our website at historyextra.com slash towerlecture. And now for our second interview. Apologies for the audio quality on this one. We had a bit of a technical issue, but the content is uh, interesting, so we've decided to run it. Launched in 1939, the 52,000-ton German warship the Tirpitz was expected to be one of the Nazis' most potent weapons in the Second World War. The British certainly thought so, launching 25 major operations against her before she was finally sunk in 1944. But, as military historian Patrick Bishop explains in an article for our March 2012 issue, the Tirpitz was far less of a threat to the Allies than either side had imagined. BBC History magazine's Rob Attar caught up with Patrick recently to find out more. For our listeners who might not know much about the Tirpitz, could you perhaps give us just a brief description of what this ship was? The ship was the state-of-the-art battleship of its time. It was the sister ship of the uh, Bismarck, which was a very heavily armoured, very fast, um, very powerful, both in the speed it could attain, the, the distance it could travel, and the shells it could fire. So it was a pretty fearsome weapon. It certainly was um, bigger and better than anything that the British Navy had in its fleet. So uh, in, the, in the minds of those who were opposing it, it was something that had to be contained, preferably sunk. And so when did the Germans build this ship? It was built in the mid-1930s. There was an agreement between the British and the Germans as the Germans rearmed. Uh, they obviously wanted a navy, and thinking rather conventionally, uh, the crowning kind of armament in their navy was going to be um, their battleships, so they had a plan to, to build a large number of battleships. The Navy were looking forward to having this fleet that would be able to rival the British fleet, which was then you know, the most powerful in the world, still though being, although being uh, overhauled rapidly by other powers, notably America. Um, but the war came too quickly, really, for them to build it up to the extent that the commanders would have liked. So when the war began, they, they only really had these two big ships uh, in service, or indeed only one of them, the Bismarck, was uh, came in. Uh, wasn't actually at sea until uh, early in 1941 and the turbines took longer to finish uh, and indeed never really went to sea at all which is one of the fascinating aspects of their story. So what were the Germans hoping to achieve with the turbines in the Second World War? Well it was in a, a conventional view of, of marine power, maritime power really because they saw the battleship as being you know, the ultimate naval weapon and it would be out in the mm. Atlantic threatening uh, Britain's most vul vulnerable strategic point, which was the fact that it depended on its overseas links uh, with America, with its transatlantic trade routes for survival on its own. Without the regular convoys bringing supplies to Britain, Britain would have literally run out of, out of fuel and out of food. So we could have been starved to death if the German naval, naval strategy had worked. Um, having said that, uh, the, it was clear to people who were a bit more forward-thinking that it was probably the submarine and indeed uh, naval aviation that was going to swing uh, the conflict at sea at this stage. But nonetheless, this fascination with battleships uh, persisted on both sides. It wasn't just the, the Germans. Um, the, the British had their battleships and saw them as, as being essential 
Um, and so it really was a kind of last gasp of, of a kind of Edwardian mindset about what constituted real naval power. But in reality, how much of a threat was the Tirpitz really to the Allies? Well, I think you can say that um, by the end of 1943, it wasn't really any kind of threat at all. Uh, it's the power that it wielded was was notional always. So it was sitting in, for most of the war in, the, in a succession of fjords up and down the Norwegian coast. Uh, and just the fact that it was there, the fact it had the capacity to break out and at this stage to attack the Arctic convoys that were supplying Russia, meant that uh, the British Navy had to keep uh, an equal or preferably a stronger force to deal with it if it did break out. So it was tying up a lot of British naval assets simply by its presence there. By the end of 1943, it had been attacked by the X-craft, these midget submarines, yeah. uh, and it you know, damaged quite considerably local intelligence, a lot of brave Norwegian agents who were spying on the ship the whole time. Uh, gave a pretty good assessment of, of the damage that had been done, and their view was, and which turned out to be correct, that it would never really be in a condition to go to sea again. Nonetheless, we kept on trying to sink it, we kept on uh, applying some enormous resources to containing it. For example, in the summer of 1944, there were numerous attempts by the fleet air arm to sink it, even though uh, a cool assessment would have said, well, you know, how much damage can it actually do at this stage? Even if it does break out, um, it can only sink so many ships. And the, in the attack, we'll have a chance to actually oppose it at sea and probably sink it. But by that stage, I think we got to a point where there, there was a kind of dynamic work there which um, didn't really have much relation to logic or, or, or a cool assessment of, of what was involved. So it became a bit of an obsession, I think, for Churchill and also for uh, his admirals and ultimately the Air Force. Could it be the case that they were partly still living somewhat in the past and they still believe in the idea of great battleships winning naval wars when in reality it was now all about aircraft carriers and submarines and things like that? I think that's very true. You've got to remember that the, um, the people at the top, uh, had, their thinking had been formed in the Edwardian era, which was, of course, the great period of dreadnoughts when naval power was measured on how big and strong your battleships were and how many of them you had. So Churchill, of course, very much of that period. Um, he was at the Admiralty yeah. in the First World War. And his first sea lord, Dudley Pound, was also uh, a man of that time. They were pretty much the same age. And the people at the top of the service, even the modern-minded, forward-thinking ones, I think still retain this notion that um, you know, the big set-piece sea battle was where events were determined, where the war was won or lost. And even though that had been proved not to be the case in the First World War, I think that idea kind of lingered on. And uh, the evidence in front of them was that actually all the ships being sunk at sea in the Battle of the Atlantic, the depredations were all due to the U-boats and to um, German aeroplanes, uh, not to battleships. But nonetheless, that idea lingered on that this was a, a real menace that had to be dealt with. But, I mean, do you think that could the British potentially have just left the Tirpitz where it was and just concentrated on other things? I think that's um, certainly a, a, a possibility. It's certainly a what if that, that, that can be examined, and I do it a bit in the book. You know, mm. um, the worst that could have happened 
is that it broke out, attacked a Russian convoy. That wouldn't have made any difference to the outcome of the, of the war. And it would probably have ended up in the destruction or, or uh, the crippling of the ship. So I think uh, a more calculated analysis of, of the threat that Turbot's posed would have come to the conclusion that you know, this is a, a problem we can, we can live with and naval resources and air resources could have been put to use, probably better use elsewhere. And on the German side, towards the end of the war when it was clear they were losing, why didn't they send the Turbots out and just risk it when they didn't really have much to lose? Um, I think it was because it was the last remaining battleship, the temptation uh, just to, to uh, cosset it, keep it safe, was quite strong. And when they did send ships out on, on risky sort of forays, they did end up being sunk. So the, the German service fleet was being whittled away steadily. And then this rather sort of bizarre decision was taken by uh, Hitler, who right until the very end of the war had this uh, belief that at some point the Allies would attempt a landing in Norway, even though they, by this stage they were well uh, on their way to Berlin. He still thought that at some point there'd be a, a kind of hook down from the north through Scandinavia. And he decided that uh, the best use that, that could be put to the Turpets, or, or the Turpets could be put to, would be to have it as a kind of floating battery that would be there to repel this Allied attack, which of course never came. And so for people who don't know about it, how exactly did the Allies finally destroy the ship? Well, they, there were 25 attempts altogether, if you include... Uh, the, the famous Saint Nazaire raid, when this amazing commando operation put the uh, the dry dock, the one dry dock that would have accommodated Turpitz out of action, uh, that was in 1942. So I think that you can read that as part of the Turpitz story. So 25 major operations by air, uh, by conventional sea means, and by these unconventional means, uh, midget submarines and uh, human torpedoes. Uh, the end finally came when uh, we devised a weapon, or rather the great inventor Barnes Wallace devised a weapon that could actually sink the, the turpets. It was incredibly thickly armoured, it had this great you know, dense hide of crooks, reinforced steel. So the bombs that the Air Force and the Navy had at their disposal just simply couldn't do the job. Eventually, um, 617 Squadron, the Dan Busters, who had been using the tall boy bomb, this enormous mm. aerodynamically perfect bomb to great effect uh, in the summer of 1944 against uh, targets like uh, canals, uh, the submarine pens, the uh, V-weapons sites, which were very heavily uh, reinforced and, uh, with strengthened, super strengthened concrete, etc. This weapon uh, would clearly uh, have other uses, and one of the uses was to sink a ship as big and as strong as the Turpic. So uh, eventually it was decided that um, the dam busters would be diverted from this kind of land effort and sent against Turpic. So there were three raids, uh, two of them from, sorry, one of them from uh, Russia early on, so they, they didn't have the distance to actually get there and carry this enormous bomb. Uh, and on the final one, which was uh, in November 1944, uh, everything went 
according to plan. The weather conditions, which are normally pretty bad, uh, uh, were perfect. And uh, it was an extraordinarily successful mission. The ship was sunk with huge loss of life. Nearly a thousand people were burnt or drowned. Um, and not a single um, aircraft was shot down over the target, even though the conditions were as good for the defenders as they were for the attackers. And there was a uh, fighter unit in the area which was specifically meant to be there to protect Turkish. So despite whether or not this, the target was, was still a really important target, it still sounds like it was a really successful raid by the, the people that did it. Yes, I think the, the importance of the raid uh, by that stage was symbolic. There was, it was really big news, the fact that Tirpitz had been sunk, it was on all the papers, it was all over the BBC, um, all the newsreels, every newsreel cinema would be the top item. And there was actually an, an RAF uh, film unit aircraft in Lancaster that was specifically there to record the event. So there was you know, terrific uh, actuality uh, of, of this, um, this victory. Um, but I think that the point was that you know, Tirpitz had somehow come to symbolise the whole Nazi regime mm. and the ambitions of Hitler. So when Tirpitz went down in November 1944, it was seen as a sort of harbinger of the end of the, of the Nazi regime and by extension the end of the war. So there was sort of great rejoicing. With Tirpitz gone, the end can't be far away. I think that, that was the thinking and that, that was why it was so celebrated. That was Patrick Bishop. As I mentioned earlier, you can read a piece by him in our March 2012 issue and his new book, Target Tirpitz, X-Craft, Agents and Dambusters, The Epic Quest to Destroy Hitler's Mightiest Warship, has just been published by Harper Press. That's all for this week's episode. Next week is a sensational one for Tudor fans as I'm out on my peregrinations again exploring a Tudor courtier's house in the company of the Tudor historian Susanna Lipscomb. Eves History Magazine's website is historyextra.com. You'll find details of our latest subscription offer there, along with a weekly history quiz, a roundup of history news, book reviews, image galleries, and features aplenty. So do have a look there. Eves History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in beautiful Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Mm-hmm.